The first time I came to Seattle, I was here for about a week. Um, and, and for transportation, I flew up on a plane uh, with a suitcase. When I arrived, I stayed on a couch at a nearby family member's place. For food, I, I mostly, while I was here, ate out at, at cafes and, and restaurants. Um, I got one of those public transit cards uh, in order to get around. And then during my time, mostly what I did was explore the city. I went to some museums, saw the sites, had, had a lot of fun. Um, and that's, that's what I did the first time I, I came up to Seattle, to the Pacific Northwest. But, but then the following year after that, this is now in, in July of 2014, I came up to Seattle again. And this time, for transportation, uh, instead of a plane, I, I came up in a truck uh, and instead of a suitcase, uh, the truck was, was full of boxes and furniture. Uh, and when I arrived, I didn't stay on a family member's couch. I moved into an apartment that I'd signed a lease on. And for food, instead of mostly restaurants and cafes, I went to the local grocery store. And, and this time, I still used public transit, uh, but I also uh, took my old Texas driver's license and exchanged it for a Washington driver's license. Um, and, and though I still explored the city and, and had a lot of fun, I also started searching for a job so I could get to work. So what's the difference between each of these visits to Seattle? Well, the first one was a temporary visit. I just came here kind of on vacation to have some fun and explore. But the second one was a permanent move. I actually moved up here. You know, the, the first time I packed enough for a week. The second time, I brought enough to live. The first time, I, I mostly spent money, right, going to restaurants, and, and I mostly kept to myself visiting museums and seeing the sights and stuff. But the second time, I got a job so that I could earn money rather than just spending it, right? And I also didn't just keep to myself and do touristy things. I actually began to meet people and, and make friends and have some bit of community. You see, each of these is a really different mindset. One of them is a temporary mindset. The goal isn't long-term, right? And so the actions I took weren't necessarily sustainable. You know, but, but right now, if I ate food uh, out all the time, and, and I spent time doing touristy things all the time, like I did when I was on vacation, then I would probably end up broke and lonely, right? That is not sustainable, you know, but, but the other time that I came to Seattle, it was, it was a permanent mindset. The goal was long-term, and the goal was sustainability. And so the actions I took, signing a lease, getting a job, making friends, finding community, these were all so that life would be sustainable, right? Not just enjoyable, but really livable. And this mindset change is what Jeremiah tells his audience in our text today. 
So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Jeremiah chapter 29. Or if you don't have a Bible, grab a little card from the seat back in front of you, because this is the text that we're looking at. Jeremiah 29. It is the very text that we are dwelling with throughout the year. So as you're, you know, grabbing that or turning there, uh, I, I want to review where we've been the last few weeks. So our first week with Jeremiah, we looked at chapter one, and we saw his call to be a prophet in exile. And we saw that in the midst of exile, God called him to firmly root his identity in God and in nothing else. If you remember, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be a prophet, right? His identity was from God, in God, before anything else. You know, and then in our second week with Jeremiah, we saw him as a prophet living that out in chapter 7. And he was preaching outside the temple. He was warning Israel that they had actually made the temple into an idol. They, they went there for religious ritual rather than true worship. And he warned them that ultimately that temple would be destroyed and they would end up out in exile. And then last week, we kind of saw another side of Jeremiah as, as we looked at chapter 8, and he began to grieve for his exiled people. If you remember, he said, oh, that my head were a spring of water, that my eyes were a fountain of tears, that I might weep for my people day and night. And all along, as we've been talking about each of these things, we've been exploring this theme of exile. We've talked about how, how we experience exile specifically as a congregation. That, you know, last week we talked a little bit about some of the change and transitions and losses that we've experienced over the past five to ten years. We've also talked about how we experience exile in the culture at large, right, that Christianity doesn't have that place of prominence and influence that it once did in culture. And, and rather than denying that, we need to shift to this sort of exile mindset. And the question we've been holding before us throughout all of this is this one, how are we to live as God's people in exile? And Jeremiah 29 responds very specifically to that question. The exile has begun. The people have been carted off from their home into a foreign land of Babylon. And Jeremiah sends them a letter telling them just how they are to live in that place of exile. So let's read Jeremiah 29 beginning in verse 1. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Verse 2, this was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, son of Shaphan, and Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. To give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for showing us how you have called us to live in exile. I pray that as we consider these words, that you would sharpen our minds and soften our hearts, that we might know you and love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I just want to walk through this passage together and continue carrying forward that question, how are we to live as God's people in exile? And here's a sketch of where we're going, what I see here. In verses 1 through 3 of our passage, Jeremiah identifies some of the people who have gone into exile. And then in verses 4 to 7, he gives them instructions for how to live in exile. In verses 8 through 9, he warns them about false prophets in exile. And then in verses 10 to 14, he tells them God's plan and promise for them in exile and beyond. So let's dive right in. 
All right, so beginning with verses 1 through 3. Now, if you're looking at that dwelling passage card, you'll see that these verses have that little ellipsis, right? Um, and, and I'm sure that our dwelling readers appreciate not having to read all of those names every week. You know, King Jeconia, Elasa, son of Shaphan, Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, King Zedekiah, right? That, that probably glad that we don't read over that every week, but, but these verses do contain something worth paying attention to because they tell us who Babylon first brought off into exile. Take a look at it. It says there are elders, priests, and prophets. It says there's the king, the queen mother, and the court officials, and then also the leaders, the artisans, and the smiths. What do all of these people have in common? These are all people with power and influence. These are the leaders of their society. You have the religious leaders, the elders, the priests, and the prophets. You have the political leaders, the king, the queen mother, and court officials. And then you also have the professional working class leaders, the the artisans and the smiths. You know, Babylon did this very strategically. They were very strategic about exiling these people. They cart off all the leaders. They cart off all the people who have power, who have influence, because one, that means the rest of the people who are left in the land will probably be pretty easy to overtake and push out of the way. And two, if they can kind of convert these leaders, to the Babylonian way of life, well, then surely the rest of the people will follow. And so this is Babylon's strategy for cultural dominance. This is Babylon's strategy in the exile. They, they want to influence the influencers. They want to overpower the ones in power. And Babylon was strategic about this. But I think that we also have an enemy who is very strategic about this. Because the forces that go against God have a tendency to focus their energies on places of power and places of influence. That means that when we find ourselves in a place of privilege, we are most vulnerable to blind spots. We are most vulnerable to sin. Isn't that true? I mean, whenever we're sort of lower on the totem pole, so to speak, we tend to keep our heads down and just kind of do the work. But when we find ourselves in places of some kind of authority, it becomes much easier to begin making compromises, begin making exceptions to the rules, and slowly fall under the influence of Babylon, right? You know, an, an example of this, very practically, is that uh, people with less money tend to be far more generous than wealthy people. There was a study that was done that showed that people with a household income of under $20,000 tended to give away about 4.5% of their income, whereas those in the fifty dollars to $100,000 range tend to only give away about 2.5% of their income, right? And that might be more money, but this is kind of the, the widow's might story that, that Jesus tells, right? 
when we are in places of power and prosperity, we are far more vulnerable to greed, to pride, to sin. This is why Jesus says we cannot serve two masters. We cannot serve both God and money. It's why he said it's very difficult for for the rich to enter the kingdom. It's why he says, you know, we don't lord it over others the way that the Gentiles do. It's why he said that in the kingdom, the first would be last, but the last will be first. Now, you know, we might not all be in some official place of, of power, influence, leadership, but, but we all have areas in our life that we have a little more privilege, a little bit more prosperity. We all have those areas that are more vulnerable to compromise. I wonder what, what are those areas for you? What does that look like in, in your own life? I wonder, what are those areas in our life together as a church? What are those areas for the people of God? You see, our our goal in society should not be to try to gain power and influence. Because when that's our goal, we're ultimately giving in to Babylon's game. And we're just playing it right with them. Jesus did not play Babylon's game. When he came, he didn't recruit the rich and the powerful into his mission. He came for the poor and the needy. Jesus didn't come to gain power and influence, but rather to give up all of his power, all the way to the point of death on the cross. And this is our call as the church. This is our call as God's people in exile. So we can begin to see Babylon's strategy at work in these first few verses with who all they began sending off into exile. And so now as as the people find themselves in exile, well, how are they to live? What does this look like? Well, Jeremiah's initial instructions to the exiles are found in verses 4 to 7. And the instructions he give, he gives are, are rather shocking and certainly counterintuitive to what you might expect to, to a people who really their identity is under attack. And, and you know, whenever you are under attack, you, you see this in human nature, you see this in nature documentaries, there tend to be a couple of primary responses. Fight or flight, right? You, you've heard these. Whenever you're under attack, you tend to go one way or the other. You either fight or, or you, you flee. And th- this is how this works out. So, so, you know, you either fight back with the hope of overpowering the enemy or you run away in order to retreat from the enemy. And these options are natural responses for, for people in exile. And, and, you know, maybe we try to fight back against the Babylonians. Some of them might be thinking that. Or maybe we just kind of give up. We huddle together and we wait for a chance to retreat back to our home in Jerusalem, in Judah. You know, that's probably kind of what the people were thinking. But Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles is neither 
to fight the Babylonians or to flee from the Babylonians. Rather, look in verses 5 through 7. He says to them, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. See, Jeremiah tells them to change their mindset. It's the same, the same difference in mindset between those two trips I took to Seattle, right? Jeremiah says to them, build houses and live in them. You know, don't just sleep on the couch, get an apartment, sign a lease, settle down. He says to them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Don't just see the sites and visit the museums, get a job. Go shopping at your local grocery store, right? He tells them, don't just keep to yourselves. Don't put life on hold. Keep living. Marry and multiply. Be part of society. Seek the welfare of the place where I have sent you. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You see, this mindset is really counterintuitive. And and it's very subversive. You know, the people say, we're strangers and exiles. And Jeremiah says, build homes and plant gardens. The people say, Babylon's abused and oppressed us. And Jeremiah says, pray for them and seek their well-being. And Jeremiah is serious about this. He doesn't just say, put up tents and go scavenge for food. He says, build houses and plant gardens. This takes commitment. This isn't temporary. This isn't portable. This is present. It's a real commitment. And it's what we're called to as well. You see, it's almost a direct quote from Jeremiah whenever Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So how are we to live in exile? Well, it's actually quite simple, really. Wherever you are, be there. Wherever you are, be there. Really, be there. Now, this sounds simple, right? And and it might sound easy, but it's actually quite a challenge. And I think it's only becoming more and more challenging. You know, in the last hundred years, the invention of cars and airplanes have made it really easy to travel and go all over the place. And then the last, you know, 20 to 30 years, the invention of the internet and and smartphones has made it possible to go from place to place without even going anywhere, right? We go from place to place with the flick of our thumb. 
You know, we, we can actually be anywhere except for where we are. But here's the call. Wherever you are, be there. This simple instruction actually has a lot pushing against it. In verses 8 and 9, we see Jeremiah warning the people of these false prophets who lie and who deceive. And what were these false prophets saying? Well, there's a specific instance of this in the chapter before. So, I mean, if you, if you have a Bible, you can flip back to chapter 28. And you can look in verse 3. There's a prophet whose name is Hananiah. And he was saying to the people, within two years, God will bring you back to this place, all the vessels of the Lord's house, which King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took away from this place and carried to Babylon. Right? He's saying, don't worry. It's only going to be a couple of years. Keep that temporary mindset. Don't settle down. Don't move in. Don't change your driver's license. Just wait. You'll be back home in no time. These are the kinds of messages that Jeremiah calls deception and lies. And I think we have some of the very same false prophets coming up against us. You know, for some people, and I think this is especially younger folks, our false prophet says really just the same as Hananiah. Don't settle down where you are. In two years, you'll be somewhere else. And that's pretty true for, for young people. In a couple years, you'll probably be somewhere else. And what happens, though, is life becomes this constant chase. You get your degree so you can get that job, so you can get that promotion, so you can get that paycheck, so you can get that car, that house, that boat, whatever it is, so that you can retire and enjoy the rest of your life and die. I mean, the whole thing really is kind of exhausting. And in the end, you die. The whole thing is so much work and, and it kind of leads to nothing. And all along the way, you were never really where you are because you were always looking for whatever comes next. And our culture might call this success, but Jeremiah calls it a deception and a lie. And, and look, it might be true, like I said, that, that you're going to be somewhere different in a couple of years than you are right now. Maybe there is kind of another job on the horizon or another degree ahead. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be where you are while you're there. Wherever you are, be there. This is the principle at work. You know, and then for other folks, you know, perhaps maybe some of the older folks, the false prophet also can kind of sound like what Hananiah was saying, not so much about what's coming up in two years, but about going back to the place where you came from. You know, and some people are stuck on the future, but I think others are stuck in the past. You know, you built houses, you planted gardens, but somewhere along the way, you stopped really living in the houses that you built. Somewhere along the way, you stopped actually eating from the gardens 
that you planted. And this happens any time you've been somewhere for a long time. It can happen when you've been in relationships with people for a long time. You know, today, uh, some of you know this, is, is Caitlin's and my one-year anniversary. It was, it was one year ago today that, that we got married. You know, and today we remember and we celebrate that, that marriage, that we got married a year ago. But here's the thing. Every day together is a new day. Every day of marriage is a new day. Like, we are still learning and discovering each other. And you might say, you know, oh, that's only a year. But the same is true of 20 years or 50 years. And I'm sure many of you could could speak into that. You know, but you're not just married to a person back then. You're married now, today. You have to be with each other. You know, and this is true of friendships as well. A long history is a very good thing, but we've got to stay present with each other in order for our relationships to grow and flourish. You know, that, that's why I loved the time that many of us got to share on Friday evening together at the, the coffee house art night. You know, there was something so raw and vulnerable, but also playful and fresh about that time together. You know, I think we, we could all see each other with fresh eyes. Not stuck in the friendships that we had with each other 10 years ago, but rediscovering the friendships that we can have with each other now, today, wherever you are, be there. Really, be there. Not pulled to the future, not stuck in the past, but faithfully present with fresh eyes for the people we're with and for the places we go. And this isn't just for each other. This is for our neighborhoods. This is for our cities. This is for Federal Way. This is for Wildwood. This is for Reach Out. Wherever we are, be there. That we might discover the kingdom in these places, having fresh eyes to see them, always present, always new. So how do we actually do that? How do we keep our eyes fresh, right? So we can really be present where we are. But, but also, how can we be where we are without getting sucked into Babylon's power game that we've talked about? Because that could happen too if we really try to be present. But I think the answer is in the final verses of our passage. So beginning in verse 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm. Plans to give you a future with hope. And then, when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. 
You see, our eyes are made fresh and our hearts are kept clean from the power game as we call upon the Lord, as we pray to him, as we search for him with our whole hearts, as we remain rooted in the reality that this kingdom thing is real. We're actually going somewhere. There is a future with hope. This really is the heart of what it means to discover the kingdom of God. And those who would tell you that that it's just some place where you go after you die actually have more in common with Hananiah than with Jeremiah. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. We discover the kingdom of God as we build our homes, as we plant gardens, as we marry and multiply and live in relationship with each other. We discover God's kingdom in our homes, at our jobs, in our relationships, if only we have fresh eyes to keep searching for God with all our heart. And here is the miraculous thing about Jeremiah's instructions to the exiles. You see, Scripture calls really all followers of Jesus exiles. This isn't just something to think about back then with the people of Israel. This is not something just to think about in today's maybe cultural shift or something. All of Jesus' followers have been called exiles. This is how Peter addresses them in 1 Peter to all the exiles in the lands. You see, Scripture calls followers of Jesus exiles. We are resident aliens. We are strangers and foreigners. We are in the world, but not of the world. And yet, there's another name that the followers of Jesus are called. There's another name that captures this reality of living in a place that's not quite home, but actually being present there. You see, in Christ, we're not only exiles. We're also called ambassadors. We're also called ambassadors, not just foreign strangers, but foreign emissaries. So what's the difference between an exile and an ambassador? Purpose. A person in exile has no purpose. They're just there. They're lost. But an ambassador, an ambassador has an immensity of purpose. An ambassador has been sent to a place as a representative. You see, when we live as Jeremiah instructs in this letter, when we are truly present where we are, when we seek the welfare of the city where God has put us, 
Whenever we search for God, when we call out to him, whenever we seek him with all our hearts, we are transformed from exiles into ambassadors. We discover that our exile is not a punishment, it's a calling. When our lives are immersed in the grace of Christ, we discover that we have not been banished, but rather we have been sent with a great mission. This is the mission that Jesus came to earth with. It's the mission that he gave to his disciples. And it's the mission that he gives to us now. So wherever you are, be there. Really, be there. This is how the world is transformed. May it be so. Amen.